So, um, maybe I'll first uh, talk just a bit about the word yoga. <clears throat> the word yoga, you've probably heard this before, uh, is from a Sanskrit root. The ancient Sanskrit language is a very, um, you could say scientific language. It's um, in the sense that the grammar is very logical. I better not get into too much into the details of ancient grammar. But it's, um, it's sort of an organic language in the sense that ancient grammarians conceived of uh, words as growing out of roots, that there are roots to words, and they grow into stems, and they kind of fructify into all kinds of words, nouns and verbs, and so on. So um, in fact, in the modern academic field of linguistics uh, began with the discovery of ancient Sanskrit grammar. Before that, uh, it wasn't really a Western academic field called linguistics. People didn't really scientifically study language, but in ancient uh, India, they did scientifically study language. And so that's where linguistics comes from. In fact, the Sanskrit alphabet, last thing on grammar, the Sanskrit alphabet itself, in the order in which the ancient uh, scholars used it, is itself a scientific phonological chart. And I won't go into all the details, but it was a, it was an extremely literate culture, which um, which saw the truth not as inexpressible by words. That there's an English word ineffable, which means you can't describe it with words. But rather, in this ancient culture, they understood that words have great power. And in fact, in the oldest Sanskrit work, perhaps the oldest book in any language in the world, the Rig Veda there's a very famous statement that there are four parts of speech and human beings on earth only know one of those. And there are three other dimensions of speech. Uh, in fact, the word for speech, you can see how English is actually related to English, uh, to Sanskrit. English is an Indo-European language. So uh, we have the word vocal or voice and that Sanskrit vak or vach or vakya. So, um, <clears throat> can't resist. Okay, a little bit of philosophy. Now that I've uh, had some grammar, some philosophy, and then, uh, and then you can't take it anymore. You can all go, but. <laughs> the status of language, like ultimately, what are the powers of language? What are the limitations of language is a very important point, philosophically, because we as human beings, uh, basically we become human through language. By hearing language, we hear concepts and ideas and relationships, and then we express ourselves. And, and so you can't really separate the process of becoming a conscious human being from the use of language. And so what's really at stake here, you can understand my American accent, right? <laughs> so what's, what's really at stake here is the ultimate nature, status, destination, or destiny of ourselves. Because language is very much a personal thing. You know, whether it's human language or the language of dolphins or, or other creatures, it's really people use language when they are people, when they, when they have a certain power of communication, when they have something to say and someone else can understand what you're saying. 
And so language itself ultimately is intensely personal. And so if our present, and, and this is by the way, a, a very powerful philosophical theme, the ancient yoga tradition. So this is not an age related forgetting of what the topic was tonight. <laughs> because ultimately, ultimately in this ancient philosophy that gave the world yoga and actually gave the world linguistics and gave the world some of the most sophisticated systematic philosophy in the world. Um, this ancient culture, it was understood that if our present personal existence, all of us are people, that means each one of us is unique. Each one of us is the center of personal consciousness. We have feelings, we have thoughts, we have will, volition. And so each one of us is a unique, irreducible person. So is that what we always are? Are we eternal or are we simply temporary? Uh, do we cease to exist when the body dies or not? And of course, in this ancient culture, the answer was a very powerful no. In fact, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, the single most important book in the tradition, um, gives an argument, it gives a sort of very simple argument to prove to you that you could not be, in every sense, identical with your physical body. He, and I'll give you a little idea of what Sanskrit sounds like. Krishna says, um, <clears throat> which means that just as, just as in this body, in this life, we all have experience of reincarnation, you know, the Latin carne, flesh. And so to reincarnate literally means to reinflesh, and that happens about every seven years. So if you ask the question, you know, because we are constantly recreating our body. I mean, at every moment, the, the pre-Socratic Greek philosopher, I'm sure you all know and love, Heraclitus is famous <laughs> for having said that um, you can't step in the same river twice. You cannot step in the same river twice. Interestingly, Heraclitus lived the same time as Buddha and, and, and Jinnah, the, the founder of Jainism. So all over India and really all, and even in China and all over and in Europe, at least in South Europe, in, in the Greek civilization, there was this powerful idea that everything in this world is temporary. Everything is in flux. And that's actually the sense of Buddha's so-called voidism or the emptiness. It doesn't mean there's nothing here. And this is, you know, this world actually exists, but the Buddhist idea was you can't point to any particular material object and say it's just that thing because every object is constantly in flux. And we know that our bodies, <clears throat> I mean, if you know, you know, atomic science and all that stuff, which, uh, you know that everything is constantly moving. And even, for example, this building is actually kind of, you know, it's temporary, it's mortal, in a sense. And and even though we can't perceive it because the process must be very, must be very slow and it may take decades or you know, who knows how long before it finally crumbles and falls, and yet that process is in motion. And so just as you can't step in the same river twice, uh, uh, you know, trying to be very clever, 
I've come up with this saying that you can't breathe in the same body twice. Because if you know your biology and physiology and all that stuff, your body's, there's like an, an incredible number of things going on in all of our bodies. I mean, our bodies are, everything is in motion. Biologically, everything is moving. Each cell is, they, they now found little engines and cells, like cells have little engines in them. <laughs> but of course, no one designed that. We see spontaneously manifesting engines all over the place. <laughs> anyway, so, so the body is constantly in motion and therefore, I mean, the skin, for example, we, you know, we, if you do the mirror, mirror on the wall thing, the, uh, the skin actually is completely replaced every two weeks. So, you know, if I look in the mirror and of course at my age, that's not really something I want to do, but, <laughs> but actually every two weeks, the skin is replacing itself. So you actually have a new skin every two weeks. And so, so Krishna gives the example that we all can remember. He says, uh, um, Dehi nos minjata dehi, just as in this body, uh, komaram, we, we experience childhood, and then jovanam, youth, adolescence. Now, our little, big, cute little baby body, I'm sure you were all very cute babies, so that little child's body, it doesn't just stretch into your adolescent body or adult body. It doesn't, it actually is a different body. It's actually a different body. So divide your age by seven, and that's how many times you've reincarnated in this life. And despite that, that's the physical reality. There's a psychological reality. And that is that we all know, we all know that I'm the same person. You know, if you just study the way we talk, often you can study the kind, the ways people use language to understand what's going on in their deep psychology. And so we say, I was a little baby, I was a child, I was the, and it was you, it was really you, even though it's a different body. So this is not rocket science, although I suspect rocket science actually isn't that complicated, but, but that's what everybody always says. So it's a different body, but it's still you. So therefore you logically cannot be the body because like which body? because you've had several of them. So it's a very simple example, which shows if you just meditate on it, that you're not the body. So the next obvious question is, well, then what are we? And for thousands of years, great sages, yogis in that part of the world really focused on that. And they spent their entire lifetime in deep meditation. Uh, some of them were great philosophers, great linguists, and they, they took it very, very seriously. And um, the conclusion of all this wisdom has been summarized in the Bhagavad Gita, which, as I said, is uh, the single most important wisdom book that came out of India. Fortunately, it's a short book. It's very simple. The Sanskrit of it, I, I actually I translated it, infomercial alert. Um, yeah. Huh. <laughs> Come on, I came from America. I've got to sell you something. <laughs> it's their textbook. Yeah, you'd be, you'd be disappointed. But okay, oh, it's textbook. So, anyway, um, 
So that, that's the first point that, um, that we are, and that's very good news because the body is mortal. And even if you have great faith in the future of bionics, um, at this point, the body is very much mortal. So to discover that you are actually not mortal, that you are immortal, is the best possible news. <laughs> and what I find amazing, it's just like, it's one of the wonders of this world, that there are a group of people who are dedicating their lives to proving that they will not exist. <laughs> I mean, there's a real death wish in atheistic science. I mean, there's, there's, there, there's really a death wish in it, which, which is inexplicable. I mean, I don't want to become an amateur psychologist and give you my opinion on what's going on in their heads. But they spend their whole lives and, and, and they become angry and, and disturbed if anyone suggests that they won't die. <laughs> this is a very interesting, and these are the same people, by the way, I won't go into this topic now, we did it over in the Krishna village, but, um, okay, I'll just do it. I mean, <laughs> You know, I've seen all those bumper stickers, just do it. So, <laughs> I took it philosophically. But anyway, I was I'll just do like a one minute version of it. There are some things which are empirically untrue and some things are logically impossible. That's a philosophical distinction, standard. This is mainstream philosophy. So for example, you know, if I say there's an 800 pound gorilla in this room, uh, we can all look around and there's not. So we can, let's say, the 800 pound visible gorilla, because the philosophers say, what if it's an invisible gorilla? But anyway, <laughs> so, so we can empirically verify there is no such thing here. However, if I say that uh, there's a square circle in this room, I don't have to, you don't have to look around. There's no such thing as a square circle. You know what the word square means? You know what the English word circle means? You know that English uh, square, square circle actually doesn't mean anything. It actually is not referring to anything and it can't refer to anything. So in the same way, the idea that you can't accept anything as really existing unless it's empirically verified, the obvious problem is you can't empirically verify that statement. I won't go into the details, that would involve you in like a really sick case of circular reasoning. So therefore, if that statement is true, it's not true. And a statement which if true is not true, is meaningless. And so the claim that nothing can be accepted as really exists and that's empirically verified is a meaningless statement which Western philosophers figured out actually many decades ago, but it hasn't trickled down yet. So, and yet if you look at people who are, who think like that, because the, 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 the core, the heart of the empirical method is the controlled experiment, which means that someone is, let's say, sort of materialist in the philosophical sense, nothing is real unless it's, you know, we can physically, materially get at it. What they're really saying is that nothing can possibly exist unless I can control it. Because empiricism, the heart of it is the controlled experiment. Then you observe the results. Then you replicate the results. That's what it is. So for someone to say nothing can exist objectively unless I can control it. As I always say, that's not a philosophy, that, that's an emotional disorder. It's like, I, I don't wanna be around anyone that I can't control, right? That's an emotional problem. And so 
So we're coming from this other culture, which is open, which truly seeks knowledge, not control, not just seeking control. It's actually seeking knowledge. And we have to be completely open to the obvious possibility that the truth, when we find it, is much greater than ourselves. Because frankly, uh, I take our own body. I mean, your, your human body is, I'm almost tempted to say, infinitely complex. When you get into the details of microbiology, it, to date myself, it will blow your mind. <laughs> so, I was in Berkeley in the late 60s, so I have all kinds of anachronistic expressions. Anyway, but it really is, I mean, I mean, every human body is just, not why a human body, I mean, I mean, any other living creature, it's just there's this almost infinite complexity, this, this design which goes far beyond what human beings can, I mean, we're just discovering, you know, over a hundred years of, of, of biology, thousands and thousands and thousands of really brilliant scientists, and they're still just figuring out how complex it is. So obviously that's just, you know, things like that just arise automatically. Just kidding. So, so anyway, since we can't build things like human bodies, we can't build universes, we can't do that stuff. And so therefore, and, and since there's a, practically an infinite amount, infinite amount of, of just intelligence all around us, it, we live in a universe of art. I mean, look at anything closely. Look at snowflakes. Look at uh, water. What do they call them? Crystals. Crystals, yeah. Or, or you know, one thing, probably the most psychedelic of all of these is the uh, sand grain. If you look at those big magnified, you know, Google it. Actually, or uh, what was that? What's the Microsoft one? They don't Google Bing. it. Bing, yeah. I don't want to endorse <laughs> so anyway, look up sand grains, and uh, it's like, it's unbelievable. Like every sand grain, it's like a jewel. They're different colors. There's these amazing, and so everywhere you look, if you look closely enough, you find art. They've taken, um, when the grasshoppers or crickets, crickets, that's right, they, when they rub their legs together, make that sound that everyone loves when you're trying to go to sleep. So what they've done is that they've, they've compared the ratio of a cricket's life to human life, which is much longer. And by that ratio, they've slowed down the, the cricket thing. And it actually sounds like Gregorian chants. It's like classical music. And so, and so the point is, wherever you look in the universe, you find art. Wherever you look in the universe, you find inconceivable intelligence. And therefore, it's a pretty good bet. If I was a betting man. It's a pretty good bet that something out there has a higher IQ than us. You know, I mean, really, that's a safe bet. And so if I'm trying to understand something greater than myself, I cannot subject it to control. That's a logical contradiction. Because by definition, that which is greater than me, I can't control. That's one of the, that's what it means to be greater, right? I can't control it. And so when people say, well, if there's really some, you know, I don't know, some people are allergic to the G word, you know, God or absolute or whatever it is, if there's something out there, then, uh, you know, prove it in the sense of like, I don't need any spiritual qualification. I don't have to meditate. I don't have to come to higher consciousness just like, okay, 
I'll give you 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> There's something really grossly irrational about this. <laughs> because um, you're trying to find something greater than yourself. Even if you don't know if such a thing exists, you may say, I'm agnostic in the literal sense that I don't know. Agnostic from the Sanskrit, Agyani, by the way, anyway. So, um, gnosis in Greek, right? Gyano, Sanskrit. They're closely related ancient Greek and Sanskrit. So, even because it's the nature of scientific experiment that you never know until you do the experiment. You never, because if you already knew, why are you doing the experiment? Because you already know. Because that means someone else already did the experiment. And so when you do an experiment, you, you say, well, if it exists, I think it would be like that. So how would you detect that? Like if there is such a thing, whether it's a brown dwarf or some subatomic particle or whether it's some divine being, if it exists and I don't know, how would I detect it? And that's how you design experiments. Experiments are, desi are designed. And they're designed uh, to match what you presume to be the characteristics or features of the thing you're looking for. That's just like, you know, this is very simple stuff. And so therefore, if you look around at the universe and you see this infinite art, intelligence, and you're trying to find out if there is a source of this, which would logically be artistic, intelligent, and conscious because in, uh, we are conscious and consciousness is not a physical thing. There's no physical object, which is consciousness. You're con I mean, think about it. Just, this is what, you know, yogis have done forever. This is what Descartes did actually. Francois, if you're a you know, fan of 17th century French philosophy. Anyway, <laughs> I know many of you are. So, so if you think about consciousness, it's not a physical thing, it's consciousness, it's awareness, it's a completely different type of thing. And so um, it'd be very disappointing to find an unconscious divine being. It's like, what would you do with it? <laughs> no, I mean, really. What would you do with it? And so it's like in, it's like in Vedanta or the Brahma Sutra, Vedanta Sutra is kind of like the uh, elite philosophical school of this ancient Sanskrit culture. And it begins by saying, Atato Brahma Jigyasa. That's the first sutra. Sutra, like Yoga Sutra. Sutra is cognate with, linguistically connected to the English word so, or like a suture, like a stitch. And it means a thread, just a thread, like, like, like trying to say something in so few words that no one can figure out what you're talking about. <laughs> Which somehow is an intellectual art back then and, <laughs> and of course the commentator the commentators would come along and explain it so anyway the most famous i mean the most famous philosophical work in this in thousands of years of this sanskrit history of course bhagavad-gita but also in terms of this vedanta it, it was the brahma Sutra vedanta it begins the tata which means now then and commentators always ask like how do you now, therefore, how do you begin a book saying therefore? Because therefore is a conclusion, right? Because of this, because of that, because the other thing, therefore. So why is it beginning therefore? Because the idea is, it was understood that if you've, under, if you've realized, if, if you have lived life enough to understand you're never gonna be perfectly happy, 
perfectly wise, simply, you know, trying to squeeze physical bodies or trying to just, you know, big out in the material world. And when you realize that, no, that's not going to make me perfectly happy. There's something much deeper inside of me. There's something much bigger and more important, something, something spiritual inside of me. And until that's satisfied, uh, consumerism is not going to float my boat. And so, so if you've understood that, then it said, then try to understand the absolute truth. Because the relative truth, by definition, is not going to be there. Because if something always exists, it's not a relative truth. So an absolute truth means something which will always be true. It never dies. You never lose it. Like a relationship. An absolute relationship means it's, sorry, I'm going to sound like a 60s song, love that never dies. I could give this whole lecture just quoting from doo-wop and 60s songs. <laughs> I, I won't. <laughs> I still love that stuff. Anyway, so, and then the next, the next sutra says, Janma Jesya Jataha, the absolute is the source of everything. That's why we're all equal. That's why we're all one. That's why there's a oneness between everything in the universe. That's why the entire universe is ultimately just one community. And every living thing in the entire universe is family because there's one source of everything. And that's how they began because, anyway, I'll try to be, uh, try to make this painless. It's just, it's just a, a natural assumption in philosophy and physics and everything that ultimately the simplest explanation is called Oakham's Razor in Western philosophy. The simplest explanation is the best, like in physics or in any kind of science. The more you can say with the smallest equation or the fewest words, the more you really understood it. Because, for example, let's say someone says, uh, do you want some of this pie? Yeah, just give me 150, 300 of that pie. <laughs> you know, do you mean you want half the pie? <laughs> <laughs> so when someone says, give me 150, 300, it's like they flunked elementary school math. So, or something happened. But anyway, so, you know, if you can say something in the simplest way possible, it means you really understand it. So, the idea that there's one source of everything uh, is philosophically the way to go. In fact, if you look at ancient Greece, uh, there was a type of philosopher's revolution against polytheism. And you see this very clearly in... Uh, in Plato's Republic, Plato's famous Republic, where he really, he says something which was unimaginably radical and revolutionary. He says, we should not teach Homer to our kids in school. I mean, Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, that was a centerpiece of the paideia, the great Greek educational system, which the Romans adopted and actually used as their curriculum because it was considered like such a great curriculum. And so Plato says, dump it, you know? And the reason he said that is because he said, Homer is giving this polytheistic system in which the gods are kind of like about as mature as a, an out-of-control adolescent. It's like Zeus will say to Hera, you know, his wife, Hera, I don't like that Trojan dude down there. I'm like, well, why not, Zeus? I just don't like him. 
I think he's a creep. I'm just going to kill him. But why? It's like there's no moral equation here. There's no justice. There's no morality. It's just like, man, I don't like you. And, and it's just, it's just like these petulant adolescent gods just kind of messing up the lives of human beings. And, and Plato said, this is, God can't be like that. I mean, this is ridiculous. It can't be like that. If there is a God, it can't be like that. I want to make one distinction. But by the way, everything I'm telling you is kind of coming from this ancient literature. I'm just sort of modernizing. And that is what people don't, under, what most people don't understand when they say things which historically actually are not well researched, like religion has been the cause of most of the wars and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it certainly has been a lot, but not in the Greco-Roman world. In the Greco-Roman world existed a very long time. They didn't have religious wars. I mean, the Romans weren't fighting to bring Zeus to other people or Jupiter. I mean, the Roman Jupiter. I mean, there was, no, there was no such thing as religious war. If you look at Asia in general, India, there was no such thing as religious war. War was a political tactic, not a nice one, but it was a political tactic. They didn't have holy wars. That came from, anyway, it came from the Middle East, but, and, and it came into the West from the Middle East, but in, in the Greco-Roman civilization and in pagan Europe, you know, honk if you love pagans, it's, um, it's, um, they didn't have religious wars. They just didn't have them. And so I make a distinction between philosophical monotheism and tribal monotheism, and they're very different. Tribal monotheism means that we worship one God and our God can beat up your God because, you know, we have the real God, you have a false God, maybe a dead God, or if it's living, it's false. <laughs> and so you get this tribal monotheism, which is obviously extremely deadly because when people get into monotheism, they claim to have the highest truth, the one highest truth, and therefore whatever they do, is, it's actually the highest possible authority acting through them, and therefore they have the divine right to atrocity, and it gets very ugly. And so tribal monotheism has definitely been a cultural problem. Until finally, in, in the West, they just said no more, and they just secularized society. There was this huge movement to secularize society, to stop all this craziness. And then, and then of course, they moved on to bigger and better things like secular industrialized wars. That's another story. Because <laughs> you know they, they gave up they gave up the uh, they gave up the tribal monotheism. They couldn't give up the psychology. That's another topic. So then there's philosophical monotheism. Philosophical monotheism simply means that you reason your way to the understanding that there's ultimately one supreme source of everything. And that's why all things share existence. Because if you think about it, there is one quality called existence that we all share. And we all actually exist, even though we're, we're all unique. But if we, you know, apart from all the details of our existence, simply the fact of existing, we all exist in the same way. And that's why we are all are in the same dimension. Because we all exist in the same way in the same dimension. In fact, all things that exist, even, I mean, the universe is multidimensional, but, but apart from that, even if you look at that multidimensionality of the universe, 
um, it's still all one final existential system and it all works together. So why is that the case? If the why question bores you and you'd rather, I don't know, play golf or something, this of course won't be interesting. But if you actually are interested to know like, where does this all come from? Why does this all exist? Why do I exist? Then the, uh, frankly, the greatest philosophers, whether they were in South, in India, whether they were in Europe, wherever they were, they came to this conclusion, because those are the two places in the world where actually independent and systematic and complete philosophical traditions arose. That's just a historical fact. So they came to the idea of a supreme source of everything. Uh, the source of everything. And so because this is philosophical monotheism, if I meet you and I find that you share the same philosophical idea, then yeah, we are in the same, we have the same idea. It doesn't matter what I call God, it doesn't matter what you call God, because what we're concerned with is having the right idea, the right concept, and if we share that concept, then we're, in the same, we're on the same team. You know, whatever your sacred history is, like your sacred history can be that the Son of God appeared in this place, or the, the prophet of God appeared there, or God appeared here or there. And so, I mean, history is unique because historical events are, you know, one time only, unless you have one of those bizarre philosophies of the endless repetition of history, in which case, I'm gonna become very freaked out because <laughs> I've done enough stupid things in my life, I don't wanna do them again. <laughs> so anyway, um, so in philosophical monotheism, there's no question of fighting over it because we each can have our own unique historical narrative through which that ultimate source manifested in this world. And the more narratives we have, the richer it gets, not the more like we need to fight over this. In fact, if I can go back to um, one fine young man, Alexander the Great. He was a fine young man in the days he wasn't killing people, but <laughs> actually Alexander had this idea, which is very interesting. He was very modern in some ways. He, he had this idea of religious syncretism, which means that, for example, uh, Jupiter, which is actually a Sanskrit word, uh, Jupiter, Ju uh, in Sanskrit means heaven and Peter means father, like paternal. So Jew Peter means the father of heaven. But so the Romans said um, Jupiter and the Greeks had Zeus and everyone else had some other name and they each had their own unique little stories, their own unique little historical epiphanies or revelations of God. But Alexander said, well, wait a second, everybody. It's, you know, we're talking about the same thing. We just all are looking at it from different points of view. We have different names, no problem. Because Alexander had this one world program. He wanted to unite the world. He realized that if we kill each other over religion, it's just the world's never gonna be a nice place. And so therefore, let's just have enough respect for other traditions to see that they're basically doing the same thing in their own way. And uh, the Romans totally, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say bought into it. I hate these capitalistic metaphors. You know, bottom line, buy into. It's a little too commercial. So, the, But the Romans really embraced this. The Romans were the great team builders, the great organizers. I mean, they, they didn't just brutalize everyone. They selectively brutalized some people. But, 
but I mean, if you study how how Rome actually took over Italy, which was a, that wasn't easy. That took a long time. They were they were really like social engineers and 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 aqueduct engineers and team builders, and so they loved the idea of religious syncretism. And the Roman emperor, and you get to the imperial stage of Roman history, actually would give send donations to all these different religions, including Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, so that a sacrifice would be done or prayer would be offered in the name of the emperor. Because the Roman point of view was there are many channels to divine power and you could never have too much divine power. <laughs> they, and, and so therefore they, you know, it was this huge sprawling empire. It, it, it had hundreds of religions. It had hundreds of religions. It's very well known that, um, that the ancient world, the classical you know, Greco-Roman world was much more like us than say the medieval world, or even the Renaissance world. They were much more modern. They thought like us, they talked like us. If you read ancient histories, they really kind of thought and talked like we do. They, they were totally into uh, religious tolerance and religious freedom, and they were totally multicultural. Mo Roman culture, the Roman Empire had dozens and dozens and dozens of different cultures, and it, and it all worked together. That's why they were so freaked out, another nice pop expression, when Middle Eastern religious came and they were fanatics and said, we have the only true religion, everyone else worshiping a false god or dead god. And the Romans thought, oh my God, this is like, you know, what about civilization? I don't mean to bash any religion, I'm just, this is real history. You can see it, for example, in the, in the historical writings of Tacitus, one of the greatest Roman historians, near contemporary Jesus, and he, he's really worried what's gonna happen if, if religious fanaticism comes into the empire or spreads in the empire. So the reason I bring up all that is because if you look at history and uh, their philosophical monotheism is a real thing, it's, it's sort of coming, it's come back now. We're kind of going back to some of the good basic pagan values without hopefully, you know, getting into the, uh, on some of the nasty things they did. So, so philosophical monotheism, philosophically, that's where philosophy leads you. That's where human reason leads you. It leads you to the simplest possible expression, which explains everything. You know, the ultimate theological equation. And so, and that's what you find also in the yoga tradition. For example, um, Patanjali says, he's famous for saying, that uh, Samadhi Siddhir, Samadhi, you know Samadhi, the last stage of yoga. It's actually three little Sanskrit linguistic items for the price of one. <laughs> Prices are slashed. It's um, some in Sanskrit, some in Sanskrit means complete or together. And we, we have that like Samadhi, and we have that in English, by the way, through the Greek. The Greeks spelled it S-Y-N, and pronounce it soon, some, and we have in words like synthesis, which means, you know, the complete thesis or everything together or symbiotic and all that. And so that's what some means. It's that Indo-European prefix which we sell in English. Ah means within or intensely, and di, that means placing. So it means placing consciousness fully intensely within the truth. That's actually the word samadhi means. 
And the word siddhi means perfection. So samadhi siddhi means the perfection of samadhi. And since samadhi is the perfection of yoga, it means the perfection of the perfection of yoga. That's what it means. Samadhi siddhi. And Patanjali says that samadhi siddhi, the perfection of the perfection of yoga comes from Ishwara Pranidhana, uh, devotion to the Lord. I hope I didn't just destroy your interest in yoga. <laughs> so the so the Yoga Sutras are, are very interesting. And by the way, the word Ishwara is a non-sectarian word. Because at the time of, of Patanjali, there were specific, specific, uh, specific names for the Supreme. But Ishwar was a non-sectarian word, and hopefully a word which even Buddhists would not get uncomfortable with, because by the time of Patanjali, Buddhism was very prominent in India, and uh, it's much more diverse and much more complex than we would now imagine. There were all kinds of Buddhism. Uh, that's another story. But so um, devotion, and and uh, so any questions so far? May I stop and see if you have any questions? On this no questions <laughs> I know you're afraid you're gonna trigger me again I'll never stop so <laughs> do we have a few more minutes or not we do? yeah okay <laughs> our eldest spoke <laughs> I thought I would give you the first few verses of the Yoga Sutras which I'm just going to publish, actually, hopefully pretty soon, translation of. And um, you've all heard of like Ashtanga Yoga, Ashta Ocho, eight, eight parts. So um, the first two parts are interesting. Well, first, the way the Yoga Sutras begins. It begins uh, at the Yogana Shasana. Now that the teaching on yoga, and I explained this, Krishna village, Shasta doesn't just mean, it means teaching, but it means more than that. Because from the root Shasta in Sanskrit, you get the word Shastra, which means an authoritative text or a scripture. That's the normal word for scripture. It can also mean a, an authoritative text, which is not purely religious. But it, because the verb Shasta means to command. I never gave you the etymology of yoga. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Before you demand a refund, I'll, I'll give it to you. But the word yoga comes from the root yud, which means to connect, to link things together. We still have it. We still have that word in English from the Sanskrit words like yoke, to yoke two things together. Like a, a yoke links the, 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 an animal to a plow. And conjugal, which means intimate, loving connection, conjugal. The jug is just Sanskrit yud. And so it means to connect. That's yoga. So, the, so it begins uh, at the now yoga anushasana. Now the, the authoritative teaching on yoga. So the fact that Patanjali used the word uh, shasanam means it's an authoritative teaching, not just like, hey, this is what I think about it. <laughs> so he claims he's giving an authoritative teaching and he uses the prefix anu. It's an anushasana, an anu teaching. And anu in Sanskrit means to follow. And therefore it can mean, anyone here know Spanish? No. Seguidamente. Seguir seguidamente. You understand? So, um, 
so anu means following, also means like one after the other, and therefore it means a sequence, something which is continuous, it can also mean continuous in the sense of one after the other. And so anushasana means he's going to give an authoritative, authoritative teaching which is coming down from a historical tradition. So that's all there in the word anushasana, but you may not get that in, you know, just an ordinary translation of it. So he says now the traditional and authoritative teaching on yoga, that's where he begins, because he's presenting something which was ancient in his time. So then the next yoga sutra is, uh, he defines what the word yoga means. He says, uh, yogas chitta vritti nirodham. Yoga means to stop the turning of the mind. And what this means is that the mind should focus on the truth, on the highest truth, the highest truth of yourself, the highest truth of the universe, the highest truth of the source of everything. But the mind turns away from that truth. Why? He'll explain that in the Yoga Sutras. Krishna explains that elaborately in the Bhagavad Gita. This is, you could call it yoga psychology. You know, why do we turn away from anything? For two reasons. Number one, because we don't like it or because something else has, you know, grabbed our attention. And so in Sanskrit, this is called Raga Dvesha. This is, these are terms used often in the Gita. Raga means like attachment and Dvesha means uh, like, revulsion like yeah that's basically you know like you, you hate something you don't like it and so i mean we we all seek pleasure we all try to avoid pain whether it's emotional pain whether it's physical pain whether it's emotional pleasure or physical pleasure we seek it and that's just the nature of our existence or you could say hedonic creatures you know we're, we're at, we we just go to pleasure and, and we go away from pain the problem is some things are painful but they're really good for us and they lead to higher pleasures, like vaccinations against lethal diseases. And some things, I mean, I think everyone in this room is old enough to know that all that glitters isn't gold, that some things seem like they're gonna make me happy and they really, you know, almost ruin my life. Or, you know, that's, I mean, I'm sure everyone's had that experience. It's called true love. <laughs> 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 so if we just if we just obey sensation alone like it feels good i want it or it doesn't feel good i don't want it we probably have a very short life and um <laughs> and not a happy one so you know that's what experience is like you know school of hard knocks we live life, or, or for example, when I was young in, in, in the 50s, 1950s, don't. <laughs> I'll get that straight. So, I mean, they had ads on TV, when TV became popular, that, you know, smoking is good for you. They had doctors, you know those ads, I mean, they got, they sued the hell out of them for that, but the tobacco companies, but they had, they had doctors dressed as doctors, you know, in their white clothes, you know, saying, yeah, smoking is really good for you. It'll make you healthy. And we now know that's not true. So, or people, you know, used to be that you want to be really healthy, eat lots of red meat. And we now know scientifically that eating red meat is health-wise about the same as smoking. 
It's about the same as smoking, health-wise. And so there's just an endless list of things that people thought felt good and they thought, but it turns out they're not good. And we know that, for example, let's say you want to be a great athlete. Australia seems like a really athletic country. At least this part of Australia, it's just, which is good. I mean, I admire that. But so let's say you want to be a, a really good athlete or you want to be a really good musician or you want to be really good at anything. You have to practice hard. So let's say you want to be a great musician. So all your friends are out playing and having a great time. You've got to do your scales. You've got to, you know, and it's, but that's the price you pay. Or let's say, I mean, if you want to be a great anything, you want to be a great athlete. It's not easy. It's not cheap. And so it's the nature of the world. You find this is a huge part of the yoga teaching, by the way, going, going way back now, not the monastery. And that is that tapasya, austerity, leads to power. Like you see these great yogis, they would, for example, they would fast or they would, or they would just sit for long periods of time. And, and so to become good at anything, to become powerful at anything, you have to practice and practice. There has to be some level of self-denial because if you just like, you know, I mean, there's so many stories of like championship games, like World Cup finals. One team, you know, they thought they were really good and the night before the game, they had a party and they were drinking and then they, they always lose the game. And so it's just the nature of this world. And so, if you, and, and as we know, when you achieve real excellence, there's a certain pleasure that comes by completely mastering a musical instrument, including the voice, or by really achieving the highest level of athletic excellence, or, or, or scholarship, or anything, or yoga. There is a certain self-satisfaction that comes from achieving true excellence that lazy, self-indulgent people will never know and can never dream of. And the same is true in relationships. If two people love each other, but you know, it's a rocky road in this world, but if two people really care about each other are really meant for each other, it requires a tremendous amount of tolerance and work and you know, to really make everything last. But at the end of it, they have something which those who quickly bail can never understand. It doesn't mean, you know, hang in there with some crazy person. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> so, so it's the same thing with consciousness. I mean, I mean, it's just so, so Patanjali says that uh, if you just give in to every whim, if anything that looks, I remember just one quick example, poor guy that went to my university, or I went to his university, uh, the singer Jim Morrison. You know, the doors? Yeah. And I actually saw them live in 1968 in uh, London. Just, they were playing with the Jefferson Airplane. Uh, you know, two California bands. California. <laughs> Wish they all could be California gurus. Anyway. <laughs> so I remember I saw this interview with Grace Slick. You know who she is? She was the lead singer for the Jefferson Airplane. And um, she really did, you know, she got older, she kind of became wiser. And I saw this interview with her and she was talking about that European tour they had with the Doors. And they were, you know, they're all living together and touring together, the Jefferson Airplane and the Doors. And she was talking about Jim Morrison, who was, you know, a good friend of hers. And, um, and she was kind of lamenting his early death. And she said that she was really shocked because they'd be walking down some street 
in Paris or London, wherever. And because he was Jim Morrison, you know, and those were the days of the, you know, super hip, hippie, everything, psychedelic days of whatever, LSD and roses. And so people would come up to him, like, like sort of hippies and all kinds of people come up to him all the time, just give him a drug, like that was kind of like their offering. <laughs> <laughs> And she said what really shocked her, even back then, because she was certainly, you know, out there in psychedelia land. And what she said really shocked her was that Jim Morrison, whatever anybody gave him, he just popped it in his mouth. <laughs> I mean, clearly he was not going to live a long life. <laughs> and he didn't. So what I mean to say is you can't, function just on the level of sensation and whim and I feel like you really there's need for intelligence and that's why Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita describes this path of bhakti yoga the, the path towards pure love as the yoga of intelligence the yoga of spiritual reason of understanding things and and knowing what's really good and Krishna says in the Gita that when you when you have spiritual intelligence you know what is actually beneficial. Just like when you eat, you know that certain foods may taste good, but they're gonna kill you. And so it's a question of just being smart and knowing how to conduct your life. And so, um, so that the mind turns away from the truth because something seduces us, which is not the truth, and therefore it's not really gonna make us happy. It's just, we're just setting ourselves up for another disappointment down the road because it's not true. Just like, for example, if I'm in a relationship, well, not likely now, but let's say I'm in a relationship and um, it's self-centered, like, you know, we're the center of everything. It's all about us. Technically, none of us is the center of the universe. I don't want to disappoint anyone. But, um, which is not bad because the more my head is filled with me, with my vanity, the less room there is for reality. And the more I am not just full of myself, the more space there is in my consciousness for the universe or for God. It's like there's this unlimited space in my mind to perceive all the wonderful things that exist because I just, I didn't fill it all up with sort of childish vanity. And so vritti, don't, to keep the mind from turning away from the truth, don't chase things that aren't real. And don't run away from things that are real and that will make you happy, but you know, no pain, no gain. I, I still remember when I was about like four years old. I have a lot of very early, early memories. And um, my dad took, I had really good parents. I always express my gratitude to them whenever I mention them. And um, my dad took myself, my older brother, to get a shot, some kind of vaccination. This was like in the early 50s. And uh, we went into the clinic, and then they took my older brother first. He was like a year and a half older than me. And I was watching, like, what are they doing in there? I left the door open, I said, okay, they pulled his pants down. Not good. <laughs> Very poor beginning. 
and I saw the needle come out, and I just thought, I'm out of here. <laughs> and I, I remember I turned and I ran, I ran down the street. And my father came, picked me up, put me on his shoulder, and took me back in. And uh, so the thing is, try to understand. I mean, I don't mean to, I don't mean torture yourself. I don't mean push yourself to the breaking point. I don't mean anything like that. You know, within your own limits, within what is healthy for you, pursue what is true, avoid what is not true, even if what is true seems a little, eh, and what is not true seems really tasty. In fact, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, when your intelligence is actually fixed in clarity, then, uh, how does he put it, that um, there is a pleasure. There, there, it's, there are things that in the beginning may seem like poison. That's a Krishna, the word Krishna uses, vishamiva. It's like poison in the beginning, but then it turns to ambrosia, it turns to nectar, it turns to the, this inconceivable pleasure. Even though in the beginning, it didn't seem so nice. And he said, there's another happiness, which is just in, in, in material illusion. In the beginning, it seems like nectar. It seems like wonderful, and then it turns to poison. I mean, we all know how many times something seemed to be wonderful and turned to poison. So, but again, we're not talking about, you know, like being cruel to yourself or just doing things that are beyond the breaking point. We're talking about within your limits, pursue what you really know is right and true, which will elevate you and bring you back to your real eternal life. So that's in, in, a, in, in a word that's yoga. Well, that was actually several words. So any questions at all? Um, if not, um, Yes. How do you tell the healthy limitations from those unhealthy ones? Oh, yeah, the devil's in the details. Um, <laughs> like how do you know when enough is enough? And you mean when it's when it's still a good stretching yourself versus when it starts to become? I'd say it's just like knowing how far you can stretch. It's exactly the same. We can stretch our mind only so far. Like if you're an athlete or you're a yogi or anything like that. You just know, you know, there's good pain and bad pain. And you can feel when the good pain is starting to become bad pain. And then you stop. And so, and any sincere person that really wants enlightenment, uh, you know, you can tell. It's, it's, it's kind of obvious. We, have, we actually have that power, that knowledge within us. So you're saying... Um, so, like, persevere through some of the pain, find the truth. So, how do you know when that you know there's no more? You, you just can't go any further to find that truth. Um, well, maybe I can't go further at the moment, but ultimately, in pursuing truth, I'm actually going back to my real self. That's where I really am. And so, it's not something extrinsic like here I am. And there's a truth out there. It's really, I mean, you are the truth yourself. And uh, the source of everything, Krishna or the divine, or whatever word you want to use, um, you are part of that. Like Krishna says in the Gita, I think it's 15.7. I'm a Gita thumper. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Krishna says in the Gita, 
Mamai Vamsa Jiva Loke. That Jiva, the living being, Jiva means life. It's actually, we have like in Latin, Viva, Viva, and Sanskrit, Jiva, Jiva. They actually say that. So Jiva means life of the living being. So Krishna says the living being is actually part of me alone. So there are monistic teachings that it's all one, which is really not a serious proposal because there are many colors, there are many sounds, there are many people, there are many relationships, and they're not just false. I mean, they may not be perfect in this world, but they're not false. It's like, for example, if you look at an apple tree reflected in, in clear water, the apple tree reflection is not an apple tree. You can't eat the reflected apples. So in that sense, it's an illusion. But in another sense, in another sense, when you look at the reflected apple tree in a clear pond with, you know, optimal optic conditions, then um, you know exactly what an apple tree looks like. So what Krishna teaches in the Gita, what Plato and Neoplatons actually taught. I mean, what, there's this ancient wisdom that this world is actually reflection of the real world. And so just like, for example, you look at the reflected apple tree and you know what an apple tree looks like, but you can't eat those apples, you go hungry. And, and, and why are we not completely satisfied? Why are we not experiencing unlimited satisfaction? unlimited pleasure at every moment. Why? Because we're trying to enjoy the reflection of reality. What's that? And not the truth. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like, for example, the body. You know, we're not body haters, body mutilators, but it's because the body is an invaluable gift. That's why we have to take care of it, keep it healthy, because it's an invaluable gift. But that's what it is. It's an instrument. And this body, this human body, can actually bring us to enlightenment if we use the body for spiritual practice. So the body is valuable. The body is just a great gift, but we're not the body. And we are actually immortal. And so when I look in the mirror and see the body, I think that's me. I'm actually trying to exist as a reflection of my real self. And so therefore it's uh, Plato's Mino who talks about this, where, where, where knowledge, I mean, deep, deep wisdom, you remember it. So what's so nice about this, as you advance what we call Krishna consciousness, you know, it's wisdom to make names for it. You're remembering, you're remembering it's like, let's say you played a musical instrument and then you stop for years. I actually had this experience. I joined, you know, spiritual movement, bhakti yoga. It's like, you just, it's like monastic discipline. And then at a certain point, I realized, actually, I really like Baroque music, which was written actually, you know, in a spiritual mood. And so it was actually written as an offering to God between roughly 1600 and 1750. Biggest names are Bach, Handel, Vivaldi, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it, it's like, and I played, I, I learned to play piano when I was a kid, you know, not bad. And so then when I took it up years and years later, it's just like, you know, 
yeah, I was able to, it's like they say, you never forget how to ride a bike. And so, although based on my experience, I wonder about that. But, <laughs> but the thing is, remembering something you knew, remembering something you knew perfectly is not the same as learning it, something you've never known. And so like these questions that uh, you asked and, and, and another person asked, because when you really are on the spiritual path, you start remembering, you remember who you are. You remember that you're eternal. You remember that you have an eternal loving relationship with all their souls and with the Supreme Soul. And you remember what real pleasure is. You experience pleasure, which is beyond anything imaginable on the material plane. Krishna says that, 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 that when someone experiences this pleasure, they know there's nothing, there's no pleasure like this because it's completely different. It, it's this pure, pure, unlimited spiritual pleasure. What it's often called, for example, Ananda Sindhu, uh, the ocean of bliss, Anandarna, there are many names for it in different traditions, the ocean of bliss. And ocean is a metaphor in ancient literature for something which just is unlimited. Because if you're rowing or sailing, the ocean's a very big place. So, you remember this. You remember this knowledge, and therefore, as you, the more you get in touch with yourself, you just know this is good for me. That's not going. I'm going too far, or I've got to, you know, stop now. It's a gradual thing. And so you're patient with yourself, but it's patient determination. If you're patient and not determined, that's called laziness. <laughs> and if you're determined and not lazy, uh, sorry, determined and not patient, you just burn out. So it's really patient determination. And, and then you, you, know, you, you make it. And as the more you advance, it's like, for example, Krishna gives the example, Aditya Vajnana. It's knowledge which is like the sun. Think of the sunrise. What's interesting about, if you consider the different characteristics of the sunrise, number one, the sun illumines everything simultaneously within your sight. It's not that individual objects like light up, like you could have, like push a button and that lamp goes on, that button, that lamp, goes. it's not like that. Everything gets illuminated simultaneously and equally and gradually. And so Krishna says that the process of enlightenment is like the sun. It's like the sun rising where, because as the sun rises, you see everything more and more as it really is. And so if you have real, spiritual consciousness, what we call Krishna consciousness, you, um, you see everything. With a clarity. Yes, what it really is. And you realize that everything has this magical, mystical quality that exists. And to exist is something much more than you ever imagined. Just to exist, for anything to exist, is something much more than you ever imagined. That everything that exists, is divine in its own way. And, and so it's not just that you meditate and see, you know, try to find yourself inside, but you, you see everything. I mean, literally, whether it's a mountain or a fire truck or your best friend or everything, everything, everything that exists, you see in a completely different way. And it's gradual. And, and when the sun rises, it's not like, well, how do I know I'm really seeing things better than in the dark. I and mean, that's not really a question. <laughs> Some things are, are 
it's it, it's what's called in Sanskrit svata pramanyam. It's a philosophical term in English. It's called self-evident. It's like, like to give a simple example. Why do you believe there's a real world outside your mind? You can't prove it, right? You can't prove there's a real world outside your mind because any proof you engineer could just be mental tricks. And yet all of us believe there really is a world outside our mind. Why? Because the experience is so powerful, it's so real that there's no other reasonable explanation for what we experience than that there's a world out there. So in the same way, there's a spiritual world out there. And you experience it with even more self-evidence. And then you find that this world is just a little part of the spiritual world. It's sort of a little corner of the spiritual world where people can, you know, try, take their best shot at trying to be God or take their best shot at trying to be the center of everything. And when you get, and it, it's, it's obviously futility. And when a person gets tired of, you know, this fantasy that I'm the center and wants to give reality a chance, then you take your spiritual practice and then even this world is part of the spiritual world. So we're in the spiritual world right now. We just don't know it. I, I used to give this example. One time I, we, have, we have a farm, Bhakti Yoga farm, Krishna farm in, um, near the University of Florida, Alachua County, Florida. And I, I lived there for several years. And uh, one time <laughs> I was there, in, in Florida, the earth is very sandy. And uh, which is good because nothing ever gets muddy, but sometimes you miss earth. But anyway, <laughs> so one time I was walking around the farm. I was in charge there. I was walking around the farm. And I just sat down on one of these sandy little trails. And this ant marched up and, you know, started walking on my arm. That's the end of the story. Wasn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I realized, what I realized that, I realized a few things. Number one, that in one sense, the ant actually knew much more about my arm than I did, you know, every freckle in here. <laughs> so I realized that ant knows the terrain of my arm in a way that I'll never know. I also realized the ant has not the slightest idea it is an arm, that it belongs to a human being, that, that with, or, or even that that ant is an ant. And so despite that advanced knowledge of my, the terrain of my arm, the arm had, the ant had no idea where it was. Absolutely no idea. Yeah, and, and so in, this, in, this, in the same way, in material consciousness, in our normal consciousness, we have absolutely no idea where we are right now. We are actually in the body of God. And so people, we're like the ants. We have no idea where we are right now. So when we, so as you start to advance in consciousness, you realize you have, I guess, like this supreme, oh my God moment. But as we advance in consciousness, you begin to realize everything. You remember everything about who you really are eternally. Good news. You know, who you really are and what perfect relationships are, what real love is, pure love. And you just, you grow back into your real life. So once you're on that path, uh, you just know. <laughs> <laughs> so
So, anything else? I kind of encouraged myself. Yes. I'm only asking an opinion, but um, do you think you carry those lessons with you? Like, if you gain that in this life and you're eternal and you keep going, yes. Do you think, like, at some level, you retain that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But I'll give you two verses in the Gita. Krishna says in, the, in I think, chapter two, Nehavikramanashosti pratyavayo navidyate. That in this process of spiritual awakening, there's no loss, and no, no diminution. I mean, to use a kind of a simple example that my teacher used to use, like everything you do spiritually, all of your practice, every good deed, spiritual deed, it goes into your spiritual bank account and it's yours forever. It's actually yours forever. And so Arjuna asks about that in the Bhagavad Gita. He says to Krishna, this chapter six, what happens to someone that falls down from their practice? Because that happens. You know, that happens. And so, and Arjuna's, his fear is, no vayavi What if a person kind of, not gave up their material life, but focused on their spiritual life, and then wasn't successful or didn't complete it? It's like, they have, they have no standing anywhere. And Krishna says, no, not at all. He says, no one who does good ever goes to a bad end. And then Krishna explains what happens to the fallen spiritual practitioner, at least the person that couldn't complete it. That one possibility is, these are the possibilities, you go to higher planets, higher worlds, where for a huge amount of time, you basically live like a celestial being, and then come back and resume your spiritual practice. And then Krishna or Krishna says even better, you will take birth directly in the family of yogis. And yogi here means spiritual practitioner. You will take birth in the family of a spiritual practitioner. And then Krishna says that uh, you will regain the understanding from your last body. And he also says, like why is it like all of you for example like why are you here you could be at some you know horrible event like an illegal rooster fight or something <laughs> so 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 the fact that i'm the fact that you're all here means that you are you have a higher understanding actually it means it and so krishna says that it's purvavyasena by your previous practice, meaning a past life, by your previous practice, tenaiva, by that alone, by that alone, hriyate, you are simply carried back into a spiritual practice. Avasha, it's really interesting, the word avasha, vasha in Sanskrit means control. So avasha without control, meaning it's almost, it's almost involuntary, just like I have to do this. Like some things, you say, I don't know why, but I have to do this. Or you may know why, and it's just, I'm just drawn to it. And so when someone is just drawn to spirituality, it's because they're remembering their previous spiritual practice in a past life. And that's why they can understand things that some people can't understand, because they've been there. And so Krishna really gives all assurance that whatever you do sincerely, to advance back to your original pure consciousness is yours forever. 
it'll always be there for you. And then, and you'll eventually be successful. Good deal. <laughs> yes. So in that case, what is the meaning of not the meaning? Why the spirit chooses this human life? You know why if we could be all living in this heavenly world? I don't know what, right, what right. is the meaning of this spirit. Right. The only there is Santiago. Chile. Chile. Yes. Ah. Yeah. Tengo amigos muy íntimos allá en Santiago. Después hablamos. Sí, es una, es una, sí me gusta mucho Chile. So, um, English. Um, yes. Well, first of all, there's kind of a, what's the word? Dreamy idea that we just choose our lives. I mean, in a sense, we do. In a sense, we do, because after all, uh, the reason we're born in a particular place is because that's what we deserve. We deserve it because that's kind of what we chose by our activities in a past life. So, okay, to answer your question directly, um, why, why human when there's so much better stuff out there? <laughs> uh, there's actually a good reason. I mean, there's a good reason why you are being given a great gift by human birth, even though there's higher worlds. Because in the higher worlds, which in sense called swarga, or like heavenly realms, uh, the enjoyment is so great. Because it's not gross. It's not like vulgar. Because that's not real happiness. In fact, if you know Epicur uh, Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, Epicureanism, he's one like, purpose of life is happiness and joy. And so even he, though he taught in ancient times that, yes, life is meant to pursue pleasure, but to do that, you have to be moderate. You have to control yourself. You have to be virtuous because that's what leads to happiness. And so, but in this, on the heavenly planets or celestial planets, it's such great happiness and it's virtuous. They're virtuous and they just have like, material facilities beyond what we can ever imagine. They live a very long time, you know, for us it would be hundreds of thousands of years and they have fantastic facilities. Everyone is just like, as they say, drop dead gorgeous. You know, everyone, I mean, they're really good looking. You know, the women are just, <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing quite as subtle as American culture. It's, um, <laughs> So, I mean, the women are all beautiful, the men are all handsome, they're all healthy, they have wonderful, you know, nature is unbelievably beautiful. And in that environment, it's like spiritual life. Yeah, right, I'm gonna get to that, I think, next Thursday. So they, they really don't have, they, they don't feel so much impetus, so much motive for spiritual life. And there are situations which are so painful, so miserable, you, you can't think about it either. I mean, some people are suffering so much, all they can think about is how do I end the suffering? And so if you look at human life, especially in a great place like Australia, by the way, I'm having a great time. And this is, uh, I really love Australia, but I grew up on the West Coast of the United States and this is kind of like California when it was still a really nice place to live. So um, in, in a human life, say a decent human life, 
there's enough happiness so that you can really understand there is such a thing as great happiness. It is possible to be wonderfully happy. And yet there's enough suffering so that you understand that it's not what I'm doing right now. What I'm doing right now, let's say if one is just engaging with your life, it, that's not the highest happiness. And that's why we dream. That's why we dream of a better relationship, of a, of a more pure love, of a more beautiful place. Of, we dream of those things, of a better life, because there is a better life. And so in that sense, human life is just really this great balance. Enough happiness, so you kind of, your mind is positive enough to seek great things. Enough suffering so that you're motivated to seek great things. And so there's even one verse in one of these Sanskrit texts in the Bhagavatam that says, even celestial beings aspire to come to earth because conditions are the best for serious spiritual practice. Does that include the ant? Include what? Does that include the ant? The ant. Oh, the ant. Oh, the ant. And probably not going to do yoga in this life. <laughs> it's, it, thank you for pointing that out, because actually it's what these ancient texts really say is that human life on earth, would you rather be an ant? It's, um, yeah, so being an ant is not, not the best situation. <laughs> How can you know? Yeah. That's, that's funny. That's People always ask that. Um, how can I know? Okay. Okay. Good question. If you stump me, I fall into a barrel of water. It's, uh, what did you say? If you can say things simple, then you really understood. Maybe at the end, the end is very simple. So how can you know if the end? Okay. First of all, say. First of all, it is. Completely possible there is a fully enlightened ant, <laughs> or maybe, or maybe a community of enlightened ants. <laughs> I can't say there's not because I'm not God. At the same time, at the same time, uh, I am not one of the postmodern people that goes to war against objectivity. I believe that we do know a lot and that we can be, for example, this room right now. Um, each one of us is having our own unique experience of, of this, you know, what's going on right here and now. Each one of us has a unique vision of it. At the same time, there are thousands and thousands of things we can agree on. Like, for example, we're indoors, not outdoors. That, that's a wood floor. We're in Australia. We're in New South Wales that, you know, someone's wearing a red shirt, someone's wearing that, I mean, that's a girl, that's a boy. There, there's like an unlimited number of things that we agree on. And so if we were truly each in our own unique, fully unique experience, there could be no communication, there could be no relationships, there, would, there could be no such thing as language, there could not be, there could not be a world as we know it. And, and so the reality of life is that it's actually a balance. Like everything else, it's a balance between subjectivity and objectivity. If you go too much to just objective facts, you become impersonal. You don't understand people. 
because each person is unique. If we go too far to the side of subjectivity, we just don't understand there's a, there's a real world out there. And we, you know, we deny science, like there's no climate change. And so, so go back to the end. Uh, I think that we can, of course the word prove, you know, it's a loaded word, but I think we have excellent reasons, I'll put it that way. We have, let's say that we don't personally experience antness. I mean, like none of us, I think none of us is an ant, unless one of you is gonna like suddenly do a sci-fi thing on us and you know, transform into some kind of alien ant. But assuming you're all actually human. Um, if we look at different species of life, and uh, what their behavior is, their you know communication, as far as we can see, what they do. Um, I believe it's reasonable, it's very reasonable, to see that there's a natural connection between consciousness and behavior. For example, if someone says, "I'm a great lover of God," and they go out and shoot a bunch of innocent people, I would say, actually, you're not. A lover of God. So severing the connection between consciousness and behavior is a very dangerous move because then everything becomes meaningless and anything anyone says to you means nothing. Anyone, anything, anything anyone does means nothing because that's just behavior. So uh, I think we have overwhelming evidence that there is actually a very, very important connection, almost seamless, between consciousness and behavior. And if we look at the behavior of different people, we do this all the time. Like, I don't think that's a nice person. Some people, in fact, are not nice. And we assume that person must not be. If someone says, I'm in high consciousness, but I'm a super jerk. But we don't believe it. <laughs> And so if we look at an ant, what do ants do? What do they do all day, day in and day out? So we, we really have no good reason to think that ants are philosophers, <laughs> that ants meditate or, or they, I mean, maybe they're meditating while they're running around, but they seem to be engaged in, as, as the sentence, there's a Sanskrit proverb that, that goes, ahara nidra cha narana, that, um, in regards to eating, uh, uh, eating, aharanija, sleeping, bhaya, defending oneself, and maitunya, and, and sex, intercourse, uh, there's no difference between human beings and animals. There's no difference. And so what is the, but it's a dharmehi teshang adiko vishesho, the specific superiority of human life lies in dharma, actually. And by dharma here, it means the ability to voluntarily, intentionally pursue virtue. <clears throat> that to do, the, do something good, not because I'm an ant neurologically programmed to act in a certain way, like defend, you know, whatever we're doing, but that I choose voluntarily, and you could say unnecessarily. 
I'm not you know, forced my own survival. I just choose to do, to pursue virtue, to practice kindness and all those things. And so we just have no, and, and so that pursuit of virtue or that you could say Dharma also can refer, if you know the history of that word Dharma, uh, Dharma can also refer to the laws that govern the universe. And so to be curious, to pursue that knowledge, to pursue knowledge. I mean, we can say that maybe ants are curious, intellectual, philosophical, maybe they're having all kinds of meaningful discussions, maybe they pursue virtue, but we just have no reason to think that, physiologically or behaviorally. We just, there's absolutely, we have no reason to think that. And so the fact that we're not God and the fact that we can never say, I, I absolutely know what that ant is thinking about or not thinking about, I think that should not lead us to a type of radical skepticism. We just doubt everything and I don't know anything. Because that's not really the case. All of us in our lives choose relationships. We exit certain relationships. We choose consciously to behave in certain ways because we feel it's meaningful, it's the right thing to do. And so at every moment in conducting a human life, in every moment, we are assuming that we know many things about the world. And so in the case of the ant, it's just, again, we're not God, we're not omniscient, but we just have no reason to think ants are philosophers or they pursue Dharma and we have unlimited reason to think that they're actually insects. Now, in the body of the insect, in the body of the insect is a soul that's equal to me. So yes, you're right. In the body of that ant is a soul that has all the knowledge that I have, whatever virtue, it is a soul in every way equal to me. But the difference is that certain bodies, just, let me give an example. Let's say you have light, like we have electric light here. So if I, let's say, put some cloth over that light, less light would come through. And I put another layer, another layer, and you get less and less light. Now, the, behind all those layers, it's the same light. It's the same light, but the covering is thicker. And so when you get subhuman bodies, they're souls like we are. They ultimately have every spiritual right and dignity that we possess. We're not better than them. But that body is a very thick covering. It's just like, for example, when we had an infant body, we're the same person, we're the same soul. But an infant body just, you know, it's not as transparent. It doesn't allow as much consciousness to come through. And so infants have to be cared for, loved, protected, because they don't have the knowledge to, you know, like, okay, two months old, mom, dad, it was great, you know, I'll, I'll text you. <laughs> Going out to seek my fortune. So, like, like take, you know, travel, like, the, the, the green, yellow, sorry, red, yellow, green. It's all the same light. Behind the red, yellow, and green covering, it's all the same light. But when consciousness comes through, let's say an infant body, it comes through as infant consciousness, child consciousness, adolescent consciousness, adult consciousness, American bison consciousness. 
or, you know, I don't know, Brazilian or Australian crocodile consciousness, a more interesting life form. So it's all the same soul. Souls are all one. They're individual, but they all have the same spiritual everything. But, but that consciousness is being filtered through different screens. And so the human body, not always only the human body, but in general, these are general principles. We have, what we're doing in, in yoga practice, spiritual yoga practice, when we free ourselves of lust and greed and just all kinds of selfishness and vanity, is we're removing the coverings we're peeling off the layers that are covering our pure consciousness. And as the layers come off, more and more consciousness comes out, more and more light. And that's why when Patanjali says yoga is to stop the mind from turning away from the truth, so that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're just uncovering ourselves, or to use another word being the same thing, discovering ourselves. We're dis and, and because that's the word Christian used, abratam covered. He says, abratam jnana jnani no He says that, that we are knowers, we are conscious beings, but we have an eternal enemy. And that eternal enemy covers us, covers our consciousness. And that enemy is selfish desire. Because in our pure state, we love all souls. And the, the natural motion of the soul is giving, loving. It's like, it's like let's say, let's say a, a mother with her newborn child. There's only love coming from the mother. It's not the mother is saying like, hey, I just gave you some formula. Like, do you have a credit card? Or <laughs> do you know anyone that has a credit card? <laughs> so if you think about a mother with her newborn child, there is only love coming out just selfless love that wants nothing in return. All the mother wants is the child live, that the child be healthy, the child be happy, and that's it. It's just this outpouring, spontaneous outpouring of love. And that's the soul. That is the soul. So when we take all the selfish layers off, there is nothing but love. You know, we are, we are, we are, loving, conscious, beautiful beings. And two loving souls meet, and there's, and that's, then there's perfect love. Because when two souls are together and they both only want to give, bingo, you know. <laughs> so that's what self, so an ant, yeah, the soul in the ant's body is just is as good as any of us in every sense. It's just, it's more covered. There's more layers, as far as we know. <laughs> Anything else? Going, going. Anyway, thank you all very much. I'm, I, I mean, honestly, I'm having a wonderful time here in Australia. First of all, because I just every day I just see so many really nice people and uh, beautiful countries. So thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.